When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Welcome to, to This to is the, the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Liesl Schwab about her essay, The Marching Bands of Mahatma Gandhi Road, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Liesl Schwab's essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Lit Hub, Words Without Borders, Creative Nonfiction, The Rumpus, and Off Assignment, among other publications and anthologies. A former Fulbright Nehru scholar in Kolkata, India, Liesl now lives with her family in Western Massachusetts. Liesl Schwab, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're where you're calling from now. Sure, um, I'm calling from uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and I'm sitting in this little table at the back of my kitchen, surrounded by windows. Um, I'm a recent transplant from New York, so I still get pretty uh, tickled when I look out my windows and see trees. So I'm surrounded by some black-eyed Susans and lots of trees. Oh, lovely. That sounds great. That's a good podcast background. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Absolutely. So the title of this piece is The Marching Bands of Mahatma Gandhi Road. Name and fame, Mohammed Sabir said in English, shouting over the noise of the traffic. Manager and occasional trumpet player for one of dozens of marching bands for hire in Kolkata, India, He was describing the glamour that once compelled families across the city to hire bands like his. 50-year-old Master Sabir, as band leaders are known, was sitting behind his desk in a pink threadbare shirt. A goat was tied to the electricity box out front, barefoot children raced past, and nearby beady makers sat chopping dried tobacco by hand. According to my phone, it was only 103 degrees, but the reported feels like had hovered between 118 and 125 for days, and it was sometimes hard to breathe. This was in May of 2019, halfway through Ramadan and an hour before Iftar. Sabir had not eaten or taken a drink of water all day. Once the cosmopolitan capital of the British Indian Empire, Kolkata, formerly Calcutta, retains a lavish if dilapidated grandeur, particularly in the older neighborhoods, crumbling palatial 19th century villas with louvered shutters and wrought iron balconies fill entire city blocks, including those along Mahatma Gandhi Road, where I was sitting with Sabir. Previously known as Harrison Road, it was the first street on the subcontinent to be lit with electric streetlights. More recently, a 2019 traffic study named MG Road the slowest street in India. Clogged with hand-painted city buses, the occasional herd of sheep, and a wooden tram that has been wobbling by since 1902, MG Road reflects both the faded opulence of Kolkata's past and a stubborn resistance to going anywhere in a hurry, including the future. In addition to Sabir's India Band, the marching band district along MG Road included Calcutta Band, Kolkata Band, Ashok Band, three different Mabub Bands, who may or may not have been cousins, 
Azad Hindustan Band, Bharat Band, Jahur Ali Band, Mahua Band, Bengal National Band, and Old Kolkata Band, to name but a few. With silver trumpets and dented tubas hanging behind their smudged glass cabinets, the storefronts sat cheek by jowl, one after the other, for more than a kilometer. In Indian weddings, the groom traditionally approaches the bride's house in a procession known as the Bharat. On horseback or in a decorated car, he often arrives with an English-style brass band. Similarly, after Hindu holidays honoring different gods and goddesses, such as Durga Puja, the clay idols are paraded through the streets, frequently accompanied by a band before the statues are lowered into a river or lake. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Sure. So the piece focuses on this industry of um, what are called, you know, brass bands or quote unquote English style bands. Um, they're marching bands uh, in in Calcutta specifically, and though marching bands exist across the subcontinent as a result of, of colonialism, but also as a way in which, you know, some British imports also dovetailed with what were already, you know, uh, drums and processions and sort of musical practices already in place. The sort of subcontinent marching band industry has really persisted, you know, across centuries. And um Across India, they are, you know, diff there's different classes and uh, the musicians are different religions. But what I had found out was that in um, Calcutta specifically, the marching bands are uh, vast majority Muslim. Um, and this was surprising to me because the ways in which the marching bands uh, earn their keep is to perform predominantly at Hindu weddings and at um, Hindu religious ceremonies, like I was just describing in the intro, where uh, after a particular holiday, the, the idols, the statues of a particular goddess, let's say, are paraded through the streets with a band and then immersed in the river or a lake. And so uh, this was interesting to me because, um, unfortunately, we're living at a time uh, in India, where there is a big rise in Hindu nationalism, and uh, there is a lot of violence against Muslims in particular. And the sort of narrative is that there's a tendency to disparage Hindu culture. And so what I found in these marching bands was just the opposite. It was a real celebration. It was a real uh, devotion to honoring and maintaining these traditions. And in that, I found something, you know, that was, was quite beautiful and, and uplifting, even while also, also, you know, revealing this, this larger vulnerability. That's a perfect summary. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I, I feel like maybe you have sort of answered this already, but um, when did you feel like this would be an essay? Like what inspired you to feel like this was an essay and how did it sort of come together at first? Well, so as I say in the piece, uh, I was living in Calcutta at that time. It was 2019 and I was on a research fellowship and I was uh, teaching a class at Presidency University, which is around the corner from this, this street, Mahatma Gandhi Road, where the bands are. So at first it was just like, I, I couldn't, you know, it, I, <laughs> I couldn't help but be taken by these musicians because they were just out on the street. I would be walking from the metro to and from class and like, lo and behold, there's, you know, a marching, or there would be not just one, but maybe seven or eight different, you know, marching band members at various states of putting on their uniforms or washing out their uniforms or practicing the drums. So it was just a very striking um, atmosphere 
through which I had to my, you know, through which my daily commute passed. Um, and then at one point, someone had mentioned to me that uh, the marching band members were predominantly Bihari. So coming from a different rural state and that they were predominantly Muslim. And, and that was what sort of then caught my attention to try to go a little deeper. So I knew that I wanted to write about them almost from the second I saw them because the, the imagery itself was so striking. It's a, it's a very busy street. It's a very old part of Calcutta. It's a pretty uh, bustling and yet, you know, run down uh, neighborhood. And yet here were these, you know, very vibrant musicians in these very bright uniforms. So right away that struck me. And then, uh, as I dug a little deeper, I, I knew that I wanted to write about, um, this upholding of, of Hindu traditions. Mm. I'm really glad that we got to hear you read the opening of the piece because I, I love where this essay starts, you know, in just a few sentences, you really dropped us down in, in Kolkata with Sabir the sights and smells and sounds. We've got the goat tied outside to the electric box and then this incredible heat and that thirst uh, because they're fasting for Ramadan. And then we get also that broader context of what Kolkata used to be and, and what it is now, you know, sort of, you know, shabby a little bit. Um, can you talk about choosing this as a starting point for the essay? Was this always the, the opening you imagined? Yeah, so it definitely was, uh, as you say, you know, Kolkata is... Um, it's a it's a place that immediately kind of it, you feel in all of your senses. Yes, visually there's a lot happening, but there's the traffic is intense. The honking is almost nonstop, uh, particularly on these main arteries. Um, you know, it's hard to have a conversation on the street sometimes because the honking is so loud. You know, the heat is uh, particularly this was I think I started doing this reporting in May. So which pretty much May and June, the hottest times of the year. And yeah, because it was Ramadan, I was taking sips of water with my some of my initial interviews and feeling incredibly self-conscious about it. <laughs> but also knowing if I didn't take a sip of water, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to make it. So I knew that like I wanted to start with just how saturated this particular stretch of of the city is uh, with sounds and heat and um and just various kinds of, there's just so much happening. Uh, but at the same time, um, where the editors and the common were really helpful is just helping me kind of work out the, the structure and the pacing of that. Um, because then there's also this tendency of wanting to say that there's almost so much going on all at once that it can be hard for a reader to follow. So um, it was it was helpful to have, you know, an editor really to partner with in that process of 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 crafting an image, but also not like kind of drowning in exposition. Right, right. Yeah, you want to put everything in on the first draft. <laughs> right, which is sometimes my tendency. So, yeah. Um, so this is another thing I think you do so well, but I've always found that it's really hard to write well about music. You know, you, you want to sort of mimic the sounds of it in the text so the reader can almost hear it, but also you need to capture sort of the feeling of hearing that music, the physical and emotional effects it has on the listener. Was it difficult to write those sections in this essay? Uh, I think it, at times it, I did lose sight of the fact that that was, in theory, the heart of the essay. You know, when you're trying to figure out the structure, when you're trying to bring in historical context, social context, um, 
you know, there's all these different sort of pieces and parts. Um, but to be honest, my husband is actually a musician and he read a very, very late draft and he said, you know, it's fine, <laughs> but you're missing, um, you're missing the music. And so that was when I really made an effort, you know, and I think different things had been there in and out along the way, but, you know, working on the structure, I think some of it got a little buried. Maybe I had been a little too um, zealous in my, what I had taken out. So then at, at a pretty late stage, I did make a real effort to layer back in the sound. Um, so I have a musician to thank, <laughs> to thank for that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's great. That's very handy. Um, so uh, if we can just go back a little, I know that you did a Fulbright fellowship in India, but it, it sounds, you know, from reading your work, like you've spent a lot of time there over the years. So, so if I can ask what originally brought you to India and sort of what keeps you coming back? Sure. So when I was an undergraduate, um, it was 1994. I was 18 years old, and it was my second year of college. And the college, I went to Antioch College in Ohio, and my college actually uh, ran a Buddhist studies program uh, that had been started in 1971. It's still going on today, and it um, it's a semester. You know, it's a quote unquote semester abroad. But in this case, we uh, lived in Bodh Gaya, India, which is a very small town where the Buddha found enlightenment uh, 2,500 years ago. And uh, particularly in the 90s, uh, this was in, in, it's in the state of Bihar, it's quite rural, it's a very impoverished state. And so, uh, and when I first started spending time there, it was just a few years after economic liberalization, which really hadn't reached that part of the country yet. So it was a very, you know, now we would almost call it old India. It was, um, you know, we didn't have uh, hot running water. We didn't have Western style toilets. We didn't have electricity a lot of the time. And it was, you know, in, in my experience, a very beautiful introduction to the countryside, to the rural parts of India. I was, you know, I was living there. I was studying Hindi. But it was also um, my introduction to Buddhism and to Buddhist history and to ancient India and to, you know, uh, the the tradition of pilgrimage that arose after the time of the Buddha. So it was at, on one hand, I was getting to know this, this very small town in rural India in the present day, but I was also being introduced to its incredibly rich and incredibly cosmopolitan history. Um, not only had it been where the, you know, Buddha was enlightened, but then for, for thousands of years after that, people, you know, started coming from, from China, from Burma, from Korea, from Japan, and then obviously eventually from the West, um, on pilgrimage. So I, you know, I had this, you know, I was very, very fortunate in that I had the opportunity to learn the history at the same time that I was being immersed in the present. And then this other sort of layer was that I was, you know, studying Buddhism. So I was, I was meditating, I was learning Buddhist philosophy, and I was being introduced to this notion of interdependence, which on both a sort of personal level, but I think also as a writer, you know, at, or you know, that that has been a sort of North Star for me is sort of how do we constantly circle back to this notion of, of, of connection and interdependence, because I think so much of writing comes out of that, you know, the, the aim to illuminate that sense of interdependence. So sorry, that's a pretty long winded answer, but all of which is to say what initially introduced me to India was, I think, sort of those three things together, an introduction to the history um, 
uh, a real love of, of place in terms of the rural parts and uh, as well as this kind of, you know, in terms of my own, you know, getting to know my own body and mind really for the first time through this lens of, of Buddhist teachings. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm curious, you know, if you've been going back there for so long, uh, you know, your essay talks about sort of the more recent last couple of years rise in sort of nationalism and and with that sort of anti-Muslim hate in India. Are there other sort of large scale shifts you feel that you've noticed since since you first started spending time in India? I mean, definitely the modernization, I'm sure, is really different. Um, what, What do you feel has changed the most? Yeah, I think it would be hard for me to say what's changed the most, but certainly, yeah, there's been a lot of changes. There was a couple of years where I didn't have a chance to go. I, I you know, I went as often as I could, but let's say I, I wasn't there between 2010 and 2015, which maybe was the longest stretch I'd ever been without going. And I came back in 2015 and I went to make a phone call and there always used to be these places, they were called STDs and <laughs> you would go and that's where you could make an international call. And the, you know, the rupees would sort of rack up by the minute. And suddenly I couldn't find one. And I asked a friend, I was like, you know, where are the STDs? And he just looked at me and he said, like, even beggars have mobiles. And, and that is true. And I mean, it has been documented. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it's now a country where, you know, more people have cell phones than toilets. Um, you know, more people have access to social media than, um, sand, you know, than indoor plumbing. So, um, that's certainly been a big shift, especially now that we're sort of seeing the ways in which social media is, you know, playing into, uh, you know, question, these larger questions of, of violence and uh, oppression and you know, much like in the U.S., spreading misinformation and fear. Um, and so that's, that's a, you know, a big change is just as in the world all over, the, the rise of, of smartphones and the sort of distraction that comes with that. Um, and then of course there's, there's just, there's, you know, there's a lot of malls in Calcutta now. There's a lot of just kind of sense of, um, you know, access to globalized capitalism basically that, that was not there in the, in the early nineties. And, um, again, I know that's the world over, but it's still uh, a striking, it's still striking to encounter that. Yeah, there's a moment in the essay where you talk about how reggaeton has sort of come to India and you hear it everywhere all the time. And that was just such a surreal thing to read. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny that I've definitely had moments of of getting more in touch with, with global pop music while living in India than I do in the US where I sort of can be a little more cut off from it. So definitely like... Uh, <laughs> definitely my own introduction to reggaeton has happened much more in India than, you know, watching a lot of like Jay Balvin on the star TV or whatever, uh, in a way that I just wouldn't necessarily encounter it in the U S there's a really striking moment in this essay, um, with two Hindu street sweepers. And, and it shows us this complicated interplay between caste and religion when it comes to India's social hierarchy, would you just sort of walk our listeners through, through that moment and sort of what that means to you? Sure. And I mean, I should just say at the outset that I am certainly not, you know, an expert. Um, I, I speak very much as a, as a student of um, a student of India and someone who loves and respects the, the culture and history very, very much. But right. So uh, there's a there's a traditionally devotional phrase in Hinduism, which is Jai Shri Ram, which is you know, just an expression of devotion. But it's become a very, very 
uh, controversial and loaded phrase um, in large part because it's often something people, uh, whether it's Muslims or Dalits, which is formerly known as untouchables or Adivasi tribal people who tend to practice uh, different, more traditional religions. But it's something that people are often taunted with or made to say while they're being uh, beaten or, or lynched. So it's become an incredibly complicated, fraught phrase. And uh, where it appears in the piece is there had just been an instance of a pretty horrific um, uh, beating of a, of a young Muslim man in a, in a different state, but then it, you know, it, the, the media around the, this killing sort of went viral as tends to happen. And there was, you know, videotapes that unfortunately were circulating quite widely. And, uh, and then there was some, some violence in Calcutta as well. And then almost immediately, as I noticed the street sweepers in my neighborhood were starting to say Jai Shri Ram in the morning, which they had never said before. I had been, you know, walking those lanes every day. And it was really uh, striking because it sort of seemed, you know, of course, I'm interpreting, I'm extrapolating here, but um, it did seem like this sort of way to say, like, we are expressing our own solidarity with this dominant force, even though we too are vulnerable. Um, street sweepers tend to be a, of a much lower caste. They experience a lot of their own marginalization and oppression. So it was striking in that it, it sort of seemed to be this very vocal, like, you know, uh, we are in support of this kind of larger narrative, even though we might be, you know, a, a sort of way to try to resist their own. I don't know it was it was sort of a display of, of strength, but I could sort of see it as that of vulnerability as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's another great paragraph in this essay where you, where you talk about why you started to speak to band leaders, sort of what appealed to you about the bands and their music and, and why it felt like a counterbalance to, to some of the things that were happening in India and in America at that time. Would, would you talk a little bit about the, those sort of motivations? Sure. So uh, again, like I, I had been kind of walking past these musicians for months and, and kind of was just so taken with the music itself. And then, you know, at the same time, this was 2019, it was, you know, Trump was still in office in the US. Uh, India was having its own elections. And, you know, it just, it was, a, it's a, it's a dark time in terms of seeing um, what's happening kind of globally in terms of an increase in a rise in authoritarianism and, and all the rest of it. And so I, I noticed that when I would be captivated by these musicians on the street, it kind of pulled me out of that moment. It kind of pulled me out of like my own fixation on like the world is so bleak and we're all so doomed. Like it was really just like the beauty of music really. But it also was, was this feeling that yes, right now there is so much, there is anti-Muslim violence in India. It's real, it's there, there's poverty, there's oppression. But at the same time, like people are never defined by that alone. And so to also see these musicians and their own sometimes joy that came from playing, the joy they brought the other people, or just the way that the music itself kind of, you know, changed the air and changed the atmosphere. Um, I just really felt like that that was in and of itself valuable and beautiful and, and, and a necessary sort of counterweight. You know, it's not to say that this 
oppression and violence isn't there, but that's also never the only story when it comes to any one person or, or any community. Yeah, that paragraph stood out to me because um, it felt to me like some, something I know that we often ask nonfiction writers to do is, is to sort of add that sort of idea and revision, like what drew you to this subject? Um, I think especially writers from, from a more journalistic background, they're often taught to sort of keep themselves out of the piece. <laughs> and we're often asking for the opposite, asking them to sort of put themselves back in the piece. Um, you know, a deeper reflection on why they wanted to tell the story, why it connected with them personally. Um, do you, th- is that something you think about at all when you're writing or in revision, like sort of balancing you in the piece and the world in the piece? Absolutely. I mean, I think about it a lot. And, you know, as someone who who uh, exclusively writes nonfiction, but also as an educator, I teach writing. I have taught writing for many, many years. This is something that I'm constantly working with and students, you know, that it's as much about, you know, whatever you're interpreting, whatever you're analyzing, whatever you're assigning value to, that's going to affect how you tell the story. Um, and, and this applies obviously to, you know, more quote unquote creative nonfiction, but any real kind of writing. So I'm always interested in, in who is the first person who is experiencing this? What is our lens? Um, because it, it provides a different sense of where that interpretation or analysis is sort of coming from. But it also provides an, an opportunity for reflection. You know, I'm very interested as someone who does write a lot about India, for instance, I'm, I'm American, I'm white, I'm from Ohio. So I'm always interested in a kind of, um, in kind of implicating myself, you know, how am I involved in this thing, even if to me, I feel that this is new or novel or foreign or different, there's some sort of connective tissue here in which I myself am implicated or involved. And to me, that's, that's the interesting part of nonfiction. That's where juxtapositions get created and interesting kind of connections and tensions and patterns um, are created from the from the literature itself, from the work of writing, and that to me is what's interesting as a reader, and and I and my goal as a writer. So um, that's perfect that you said that because I think that kind of segues to my next question. So um, you know, the Common is a magazine focused on place, but but we still we tend to discourage writers from submitting travel writing or sort of traditional travelogues, mostly because those pieces can often be sort of exoticizing or, or voyeuristic, the, you know, the white Western writer trying to understand the foreign culture in, in, in a superficial way or sort of a self-serving way. Um, and, and your piece is such an example um, of, of the opposite effect because it engages at, at a much deeper level. Um, what can you say about how you approach writing about experiences abroad, you know, especially when it's, it's not your culture? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't, I don't, know if I have one um, quick answer, but something I think about a lot, perhaps again, because it's a piece I often teach, but there's a, a beautiful, very short Chang Ray Lee essay. It gets anthologized a lot about, I think the title is Sea Urchin, where he goes uh, uh, to Korea, I think for the first time as an adolescent, maybe as there as a little kid, but um, he doesn't, it's his first time kind of remembering it It's as an older kid. And um, he talks about just the smells and there's a line and I might be misquoting it, but it's something along the lines of, it was the first time I realized I stink. And um, 
and I and I teach that a lot because it it does this work of kind of flipping back to the narrator, you know, of kind of again, like how am I implicated? How does this experience of the world, um, of the wider world, help me understand? myself, uh, not just in a sort of, you know, narcissistic way, but what did I never realize about how I was raised? How is my own sort of concept of, of these things that I didn't even think were a lens are in fact a lens. And so I love that line of like, it's the first time I realized that I stink. (laughs) And I, and I come back to that a lot, um, as a reader and a writer, because I think that to me is always the interesting question. Um, so, so that's one answer. Um, you know, the other thing is this, uh, as someone who has spent a lot of time outside of the U.S., I'm always kind of shocked by, you know, a lot of Americans don't seem terribly interested in reading about things outside of America. And I, and I hats off to the common for really challenging that. Um, or I'm realizing that a lot of Americans have this expectation for what stories about places outside of America should be in ways that kind of like fit these very American conventions. And as an American, I'm always kind of eager to challenge my own just ways of thinking, including ways of even thinking about story and narrative. You know, I'm really interested in kind of pushing back against the hero's journey or this kind of notion that any one individual has so much agency or choice to always kind of find insight or make a different choice or make something better. Like, I'm really interested in in trying to expand my sense of imagination, um, because I think I have a responsibility to that. Plus, it's just interesting to me. So I like to think about writing, too, is uh, how can we even not only just tell different stories, but actually challenge our very notion of what and how what constitutes a story to begin with? Yeah, so it, it sounds like you've taught a lot of creative writing, um, I think, at the undergrad level. And, and and I didn't really study creative writing formally, so I'm always sort of curious about the logistics of teaching it. Um, do you have a certain way you try to approach teaching creative writing? Um, it, it always feels like such a personal individual thing to me that I sort of often wonder how it, how it can be taught. <laughs> yeah, so I, sh- I should say I'm, I'm just now wrapping up... Um, 15 years of teaching at Yeshiva University, where I taught undergrad for many years and then directed the writing program. And early on in my teaching, I think I really felt that, you know, there's a big difference between, let's say, like, quote, unquote, creative writing, and then kind of like first year writing freshman comp, which I also taught a lot of, I thought of those things as very, very different. Um, But the more I taught, the more I sort of came to not see them as different Um, nearly as different as I thought. Yeah, sure, different genres, different rhetorical situations. But I think, you know, for me as an educator, it, it was this real emphasis of, you know, kind of some of the questions you're asking now, kind of like, where are you? Where are you starting from? What are you thinking about? What conversation are you paying attention to? And how do you want to join that conversation? And I think for, you know, especially young people, who, you know, are taught maybe that either writing is this thing where you have to Google something, (laughs) you know, you have to quote, quote, unquote, quote someone, you know, that evidence is just kind of putting a bunch of quotes together, or this kind of like, uh, 
you know, this generation that has very much grown up posting and sharing and this idea that anything I say will kind of be inherently interesting because I'm just, you know, it's about sort of like, well, who even are you and what is the context and what are you sort of going for? And, and so those are things that I try to underscore in a class. It's kind of like, who are you? Who's your audience? What are you trying to say? And and sort of starting with this notion of what do you know for sure? And then how are you going to build on that, challenge that? And trying to get students to be pretty honest about what they also don't know, because then that helps create a focus. You know, what are you trying to figure out in this essay? So the longer I taught, the less of a distinction I sort of made between, obviously, I would teach a creative writing class versus a freshman comp class. But the more that I saw that that work was pretty similar and the more it sort of underscored my belief that, you know, pretty much all writing is creative and um, that a real sense of listening is so important to any kind of writing, to, you know, understanding what's already happening and what you're going to contribute to the conversation in the same way you would if you were you know, sitting down at a dinner party, you ideally, you're going to listen to what's being said around you before you chime in. Um, And I think that 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 has really uh, guided my work as an educator, along with this notion that actually, you know, we think of writing as solitary, we think of it as this, oh, I'm just writing what I think. But I, of course, actually see it through this much larger frame of public discourse and the sort of responsibility of literacy and the responsibility of education. So again, to me, writing is about like, what do I think and why and what are the implications of that? And I really see the value of that as kind of this, you know, democratic necessity of public discourse. And I, and I believe that both, about both the, the, the art of creative writing and the sort of more, you know, I don't. I don't know if it's only utilitarian, but the sort of work of research and education and, and how in journalism, you know, different kinds of writing, but all sort of in under this larger umbrella of discourse and, and understanding. Yeah, no, I really I so enjoyed hearing hearing your thoughts on that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so always our last question is just to find out sort of what you're working on now and, and what's next from you. Great. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I was actually just back in Calcutta for a couple of weeks. I was uh, teaching there, but I was also starting some research. Um, There was a Bengali playwright and actor. His name was, uh, in in Hindi, you say Utpal Dutt, and in Bengali it's Utpal Dutto. And he was a pretty interesting guy. He was uh, very political, very pro-revolution. He was jailed in the late 1960s for his kind of like anti-government work. Um, But he was also a beloved comedian in the uh, mainstream Hindi film industry. Um, So he he was an interesting guy in that he did a lot of things, but he was also a playwright. And he wrote a play in the late 1960s that was based on the Scottsboro trials, which was um, early 1930s Alabama, when nine young black men and boys were wrongfully convicted of raping two white women. And he wrote this play in Bengali, and it was performed for Bengali audiences in late 1960s Calcutta, but it was based on the trials of the Scottsboro Boys. And um, so I'm doing some research about the performance of that play, about sort of ways in which it was, I mean, in many ways, it was political propaganda for the Communist Party, but it also shed really interesting light on, um, you know, American racism, American history of slavery and oppression and violence. 
um, even though it was very much performed and experienced as a Bengali play. So it kind of loops back to some of what I was talking about before, these notions of, you know, kind of a global conscience, but also kind of individual, you know, how are we implicated? Um, so that's that's a bigger uh, research project I'm working on at the moment. That sounds fantastic. Liesl Schwab, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. I really appreciate the conversation. Listeners, you can read Liesl's essay and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.